Welcome. Good morning. Happy Stampede Sunday to you. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in the driveway shooting hoops with your young son, maybe your nephew, something like that. So you're goofing around, having fun. You know, he's just a little kid. He's seven or eight years old. So you're taking it easy on him. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're just throwing up random shots, having some fun. You're letting him feel like he's a part, like he can keep up with you. He can stay in the game. Are you with me? You're tracking with this scenario so far? Because if you, if you really wanted to, you could humiliate this kid. You know that, right? You know you could put him in his place real fast, but that's not fun for anybody. So again, you let him feel like you are closer in ability than you really are. But then your nephew starts to make a few shots, okay? And he starts swaggering around the driveway like baby Braun. He starts saying, you're an old man. Your game is washed. And you're like, okay, it's time to teach this kid a lesson. You know what I'm saying? You, you check the ball at the top of the key. You immediately hit him with a crossover, break his ankles. He falls down to the ground. He's so off balance. You charge to the rim, launch up into the air. And because he's only eight years old, you've been playing on an eight foot high goal. So you throw down a monster tomahawk jam, you know? You slam down to the ground. Your boy's on the, on the pavement looking up at you. Now you're walking around like Daddy Braun, you know? You had to show him. You had to give him a brief display to remind him that you are not even close to being in the same league. Welcome to Job chapter 38. This is precisely what God does to Job and us in chapter 38. So we've been talking about the story of Job for six weeks now, something like that. We've talked about all of the tragedies and trials that this poor man went through. We read last week about how his friends show up after he's gone through all of this heartache and pain and they show up and at first they do exactly what a great friend should do. They console their friend, they're there for him, but pretty quickly they change from just being um, interested in consoling him and they start to correct Job. So Job in a friends get into this long argument, this long debate back and forth about why he's experiencing everything he is. Who's responsible for all of this hurt and heartache and pain that he's going through? And his friends say it's him. Job says, nope, I'm not doing anything wrong. God is actually the one that's doing something wrong. Job begins to articulate that he feels abandoned by God, forgotten by God, even abused by God, like God is treating him unfairly and unjustly. We talked about this in our message last week. And so eventually, uh, Job starts demanding that God show up and answer for his crimes against him. You, you, God, you need to come here and give me some answers as to why I have had to go through all of these things. Because I know I didn't do anything wrong. So what could we possibly have to gain from you causing me to suffer all of this loss? Job demands that God shows up. And in verse, or chapter 38, rather, God does show up. We read in chapter 38, verse 1, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them, Job. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is when the soundtrack changes, 
you know that stuff is about to get real here. For the next 150 verses, God assaults Job with questions that are designed to expose Job's ignorance and his hubris. Now, we don't have time to read 150 verses today. I honestly wish we did, but I thought maybe we could just hit some of the highlights over the next couple chapters, all right? God shows up. He says, brace yourself, fool. I'm going to ask you some questions, and now I want you to give me answers if you've got them. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out its surveying line? What supports its foundation and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted in glory? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth and to bring an end to the night's rain? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located, Job? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know. Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how they get there? But of course, you know all this. For you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. Okay. If you ever needed proof that sarcasm was a spiritual gift, (laughs) there is a place for godly sarcasm. I'm just going to say it. He goes on and he says to Job, have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of Pleiades or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct of man's mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clouds? You? Can you stalk prey for a lioness and satisfy the lion's appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thickets? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out to God and wander about in hunger? Do you know, Job, when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched as deer are born in the wild? Do you even know how many months they, months they carry their young? Are you aware of the time of their delivery? Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will a wild animal plow a field for you? Given its strength, Can you really trust it? Can you leave and trust the ox to do your work for you? Can you rely on that animal to bring home your grain and deliver it to the threshing floor? Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings toward the south? Is it your command that makes the eagle rise to the heights to make its nest? Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove that you're right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, put on your glory and your splendor. Put on your honor and your majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow with the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then I would praise you for your own strength would save you. And on and on it goes. God doesn't even stop the barrage, okay? At this point, we read in chapter 40, verses 1 to 2, Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? 
You're God's critic, but do you have any answers? Woo. I don't know about you guys, but it feels kind of like God is bullying Job in this moment. I'm just going to be real with you. I struggle with this. This poor guy has lost everything that he could have. He's just hoping to get some kind of explanation about why it is that God has put him through all of these trials and this turmoil. And then God shows up and he asks him all of these questions that are literally intentionally specifically designed to expose his ignorance to make him feel foolish and small like whoa god is dunking on job but like at what point does it go too far like at what point is god cruel at what point is he just piling on to this poor man when he's asking what i think are fair and legitimate questions at least in theory about all of his suffering I don't know if you feel that way, but I do every time I read this section of the Bible. Now, it's important for us to remember that God is not being unfair to Job here, okay? First, Job was the one who demanded a debate with God. He asked for this. He said, God, I want you to show up and I wanna talk to you face to face. And so God said, okay, here I come. Maybe this is a good reminder for us to be careful about what we ask God for because he might just give it to us. And it may not be exactly what we expected it to be. But you know, more importantly, all of these questions are designed to provoke a humility within humanity that we desperately need. This is about Job the individual, yes, but it's about all of us as well. We tend to speak about things with such confidence and certainty, don't we? Like it doesn't matter what the, what the arena of life it is that we're speaking in. We just talk as if we have all the answers. So like, you know, non-religious people, they tend to rely on all of the information and truths that we've gained through science. And listen, I'm thankful for every bit of that. I believe and support it. Science is simply the understanding of how God has created the world. So Christians don't need to be afraid of science. But what can happen is we can learn so many things through our scientific endeavors that we start to think, oh, I've got all this figured out. Like, I don't know about you, but when I read a lot of those questions that God was asking Job, I'm like, I know those answers actually, or at least Wikipedia knows those answers. <laughs> like we've actually come a long way in our understanding, but realize like God could simply ask us another series of questions. You know what I mean? He's like, so tell me, how does quantum entanglement work? And we're going to be like, what? You know, it's like, there's just a new series of questions. But what happens is we, we, are, we are able to understand the world. And as time goes on, we gain more and more understanding. And that gives us a hubris. It gives us a sense that like, oh yeah, we know what's up. And our answers are always right. It's not just non-religious people, though. I think religious people might even be worse about all of this because we'll take what science says and then we'll add to it our understandings and interpretations of scripture. And suddenly we're like, not only do I have all of the natural facts about the world, but I have the supernatural word of God that is telling me this is right. I'm right. You're wrong. I know what's up. I've got the correct answer and nobody else does. We speak so confidently about things. And God's, um, his appearance here in Job 38 is meant to remind us that like we need a little bit more humility, okay? The fact that like slavery and eugenics and nuclear weapons and religious crusades and inquisitions, the fact that all of those have existed, some of them still exist, that should remind us that it is a dangerous thing to trust in our own knowledge, to be too confident in our abilities. It goes so, it goes south so fast. We've demonstrated this again and again and again. Humility is humanity's most underrated virtue. 
Humility is humanity's most underrated virtue. I, I really believe, like there are many, many, many virtues that we need to recover in our world today, but perhaps at the top of that list is a godly humility. A, a, a humility that says, you know what? There is a lot we know. There is a lot more that we do not know. And so rather than confidently saying what we do know, we should also very uh, comfortably articulate the things that we don't know. Now, this is not just a good reminder for us as a species, okay? Like humanity needs humility. Individually, we need more humility as well. I want you to consider for just a moment the question that God posed to Job. He said there in chapter number 40, uh, you are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Like when you go through hard times, okay? When you think about the big problems that exist in our world, it can be really easy to believe that like, well, I know what should be done. I, I know the right answer. I know how, you know, the world should, should uh, play out. I know how governments should behave. I know what people should choose and not choose. It's very easy to believe that we have all of the answers. But could we just acknowledge for a moment that we each have only our own limited perspective to speak from? We only have our own limited perspective. And again, when God shows up and he asks Job all of these questions that Job really cannot know the answer to, he's trying to show him, you are finite. Your perspective is finite. Your answers are finite. You're missing key information about the the world and humanity. And, And so you're saying how it should operate. You're making all of these statements and pontificating about what's right and wrong. And you only have your tiniest sliver of experience, of knowledge, of resources, okay? Um, When I speak, I have to be really careful because I get up and I speak from like the perspective of a 42-year-old middle-class white North American. Do I really believe that I, from this one perspective, have the perspective over everything in every situation? including my own, I shouldn't say that. You might be a 60-year-old wealthy African woman. Are you really confident that you know, based on your limited life experience, that you know how things should go? How the world should be operated? The decisions that people should be making? Are we really confident that we have the right answers. You know what I've learned over time? And many of you are leaders. Maybe you're leaders of your family. You might be leaders in in the business world or, or in some other organizations. And you know what I'm about to say is true. That is that the further you are away from a problem, the easier the answers seem. Do you, do you know that? Distance distorts. So like when you're at the bottom of the organization, you're like, what is the CEO doing? Why would the prime minister decide that? If I were prime minister, I know what I would do. Do you? Because you don't have the information that he has. You don't have the resources that she has. Like, isn't it entirely possible that if you knew what they knew and you had access to the resources that they had, that you would do exactly what they did? Is it possible? I'm not saying it's likely. I'm not saying you would suddenly become a liberal. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, like, is it possible 
that your limited perspective precludes you from knowing a situation as accurately as you should. So when we sit down here and we say, God, how dare you and why would you and this is unfair and you're unjust, God is saying, who is this that questions my knowledge with such ignorant words? Like, I love you, but, but you're a kid. You, you couldn't possibly understand why I do what I do and why I try to do it. You would have an easier time trying to teach an earthworm algebra than trying to get us to understand why God does the things that he does. We need a bit more humility. If God let you Evan Almighty the universe for a day, it might actually just turn out like Evan Almighty, okay? This push, okay, this push from hubris to humility. This is present throughout the scripture. And in fact, it's one of the reasons that God so consistently answers our questions with more questions. Did you know that the book of Job has more questions on its pages than any other book in the Bible? More questions in the book of Job than any other book in the Bible. This is true. In the book of Genesis, there are 160 questions. In the book of Matthew, there are 150 questions. In the book of Psalms, the longest book in the entire Bible, 150 chapters, there are 160 questions. So roughly in the book of Psalms, there is one question per chapter. In the book of Job, there are 330 individual questions that are answered. That works out to be just about eight questions per chapter. And you know what's most fascinating is if you just kind of had this surface, you know, perspective on the book of Job and I said to you, did you know there are more questions in the book of Job than any other book in the Bible? You'd be like, yeah, totally. I bet Job had a lot of questions. But Job is actually not the one that asks the vast majority of the questions in the book of Job. God is the one who asks the vast majority of questions. And it's not just in the Old Testament. If you pay attention in the New Testament, Jesus quite often responded to people's questions with questions right back at them. He does this time and again. He's the master teacher. He has access to all information and yet people will ask him a straightforward question. He doesn't give him an answer. In reply, he gives them another question. Hmm. I've also noticed that in my times of prayer, the Spirit will not give me simplistic answers. Instead, often the Spirit will prompt further questions and they require me to meditate and to think and to wrestle and to go deeper. Time and time again, God responds to our questions, not with answers, but with more questions. This is a... When we said at the beginning, first series, our first message in the series, we said that most people think the book of Job answers the question, why do good people suffer? We said, nope, that's not it. The book of Job is really addressing the question, does God run the world fairly, justly, rightly, in a good way that we can trust? But another key theme in the book of Job is that we can demand answers all we want. And there is nothing wrong with asking for answers. You can pursue answers. You can question God. God's not afraid. You're not gonna expose him as a fraud, okay? Like you can ask whatever questions you want. There are real and raw questions that are, uh, that are offered up in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. However, God is under no obligation to answer your questions. Like, I want to be able to say to you, oh, God loves you so much, dear, that when you go to him and you say, oh, but God, why? That he's going to sit down, he's going to put his arm around you, and he's going to explain everything. 
from eternity past to eternity future, he's going to show you how your story is a part of the grand story. I want to be able to tell you that, but can I just let you in on a little secret? God doesn't do that for anybody. Now, he might do that someday in eternity. We're going to have forever, so there'll be plenty of time. But he doesn't do it here. So the key then, the, the, the point of the book of Job is when I don't understand what God is doing, when I'm not getting answers for why my life is turning out the way that it is, when God only gives me more questions in response, can I still trust him? Can I still trust that he's good He's worthy of my love, my worship, my obedience, even when I don't know why he's doing what he's doing. There's an old song, a little cheesy, but that's okay. It says, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. When you don't know what God is trying to do, could you trust that he loves you and he has a good plan, one that is so good, your limited brain couldn't even wrap around it. This barrage of questions, it really can feel over the top. It can feel cruel, but Job didn't see it that way. Job actually didn't see it. Like he, he wasn't like, God, stop bullying me. He, he doesn't respond that way. Actually, I want you to look at how Job responds. Uh, chapter 42, verses one to six. Uh, God, boom, 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 hits him. Three, four chapters in a row with all of these questions. And then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? And Job says, that was me. <laughs> I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. God, you said, listen, and I'll speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. But Job says in verse five, I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. And so I take back everything I said. And I sit in dust and ashes, there's the title of the series, to show my repentance. Job says all of these questions that God surfaced, they're wonderful. He says this encounter with God is a blessing. It's special because it allowed him to not just know about God generally, but to know God personally to see him with his own eyes, to have an actual interaction with his Lord. I mean, to understand how these questions could seem wonderful to Job, let's go back to the first verse that we read this morning. Because I actually think there are hints and clues throughout this entire passage that we've talked about that show why Job at the end would say, oh, this is too wonderful for words. I want you to look at Job 38, verse one. And I want you to notice this. When God shows up, we're told the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Hey, life often feels like a whirlwind, doesn't it? Doesn't life feel like a storm? Like a never-ending storm? I even like the word choice here, whirlwind. I mean, we, we just were exposed to the raw power of a whirlwind a few days ago with the, the F4 tornado up in Carstairs in Didsbury. And you see the, the photos and the video. You see the power. You see the damage. You see the chaos and the wreckage. And some of y'all are like, that's my life right now. There is a whirlwind. Now, the Hebrew word here, actually, it doesn't just mean tornado. It's a bigger, world, uh, bigger word that means storm, okay? So I want you to catch this. When God speaks to Job, 
God speaks from within the storm. God does not speak from outside of the storm. God doesn't speak from above the storm. He's up in heaven looking down at you in the middle of your storm and saying, whoo. God doesn't speak after the storm has passed. The Bible says God speaks from the storm. When you're going through storms in life, God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. You are not alone. Do you realize this was actually Job's greatest fear in this whole thing? If you read his speeches, I mean, he is crushed over the loss of his business. He's crushed over the loss of his reputation. He's crushed over the loss of his health. And of course, the loss of his children. And you see a key theme rising up again and again. And that is Job is really desperately afraid that in this tragedy, he's also lost God or that somehow God has lost him. So when the chaos is swirling, when the storm is raging and it is from the storm that God speaks, Job realizes, I haven't been abandoned yet. God is with me in the middle of my storm. God is with you in the middle of your health diagnosis. God is with you in the middle of your bankruptcy. God is with you in the middle of your depression. God is still with you in the middle of your divorce. God is still with you in the middle of your tension and your questions and your doubts. God speaks from the storm. When God speaks and he, he comes up with this huge, like just, like I said, this assault of questions. Job, he doesn't feel overwhelmed in like this negative sense. Instead, what he feels is God saying to him, Job, don't you see that I'm bigger than your storm? Don't you see that I'm bigger than your circumstances? Don't you see that I'm more powerful than the things that are wrecking you right now? Don't you understand that all of this is still within my control? That I love you, that I can be trusted even when I don't do what you expect me to do. So if you're in the middle of a storm, can I ask you, are you listening for God's voice? Or is the chaos, is the, is the thundering sound, is the lightning and the flood and all the pain and the heartache, is it drowning him out? Because it may just be that God is using the storm to say the things to you that you would not hear otherwise. My, my pastor growing up used to say, sometimes God has to put you flat on your back before he can get you to look up. Now, not every storm you go through is punishment for something you've done wrong or because you haven't been listening. We talked about that last week. But when the storm is raging, we can be confident that God is speaking. Now, we do need to acknowledge that God never gives Job any kind of explanation for what happens. Like, do you realize never in the book of Job is he ever told about God's conversation with the Satan? He, he never gets that information. He, he's never told when God shows up in chapter 38 and on through to chapter 40, 
God never says to him, now here's how everything's gonna play out, Job. You can trust me because I'm gonna show you the end. He doesn't give him any of that information. God doesn't tell Job, your story is gonna become so famous. It's gonna be one of the most famous stories in history. And literally, Job, billions of people are going to find comfort in their hardships because of what you're suffering. God doesn't tell him any of that. Why? Like, why couldn't God give him just a little bit of insight, just a little bit of perspective, just a tiny bit of answers? Wouldn't that make him feel better? Well, the reason that God doesn't actually give him any of that information is that God knows something we struggle to accept. And that is that intellectual answers cannot satisfy emotional pain. Intellectual answers cannot satisfy emotional pain. When we go through hurt and heartache and loss, whatever it might be, we think, okay, well, if I have some explanation, then it won't hurt as much. If I could understand why this person did what they did, or if I could understand how I found myself in this circumstance, because I really don't see the path from there to here. If I could just understand the big plan and how God is going to somehow turn this for good. If I could just get those answers, then I wouldn't hurt so much. Hear me, that is almost never the case. Imagine if God had shown up in chapter 38 and he had sat Job down and he had put his arm around Job. And he had said, I want you to see. And so he told him about the, the conversation with the devil. And he told him about how the story was gonna end. And he told him that there were gonna be Christians, Canadians, millennia in the future who are gonna be sitting around encouraged and strengthened in their own storms because of what he was enduring. Suppose God had given him all of those answers. What do you believe that Job would have said in response? I know what Job would have said. He would have said, I don't care. Give me my kids back. There is no explanation that was gonna relieve Job's grief. There is no answer that's gonna make him feel better. There are explanations and there are answers. However, intellectual answers cannot satisfy emotional pain. This week, Amber and I were at the bedside of, of Doton, man in the church that many of you know well, and he's in the final stages of a battle with cancer, and we're anointing him with oil, and we're praying over him and, and trusting God for healing, but you know, it's gonna take a miraculous turnaround. And you just, you, you sit there and you think, here, here he is, he's a medical doctor. He's got a family, beautiful family. He loves Jesus with his entire heart. He, he delivered a five for five message last year that many of you remember well. He is somebody who has committed himself to loving and serving God and his family and his community well. And I just, you, you sit in a situation like that and you say, why God? There is no good explanation for this. There is no way this is fair or right or good. Can I tell you, if God had shown up in that room and said, I want you to see the story. I want you to see how all this is gonna play out. I wanna give you the answers. I want you to get the explanation here. That doesn't change the reality of the situation that he's in. His wife and kids are not going to grieve any less over his sickness because intellectual answers literally don't have the power to satisfy emotional pain. 
So like when you go to God and say, God, give me answers, you're asking him to give you something that even if he does provide it, won't actually make you feel better. When life falls apart, you don't need an explanation of God's plans. You need an experience of God's presence. Emotional pain can only be healed. It can only be addressed. It can only be lessened in the presence of God. I don't know if you noticed it, but basically the last thing, it's like the second to the last sentence that Job ever speaks in the Bible. He says, I had only heard about you before, but now, who now, I have seen you with my own eyes. See, even though Job didn't get an explanation of God's plans, he got an experience of God's presence. He entered into another level of knowledge and intimacy with God. And that was enough to sustain him in the whirlwind. That was enough to see him through. God's presence will sustain you in ways that answers cannot. The disciples actually illustrated this one day with Jesus. So the Messiah has been, you know, traveling around the, the countryside of Israel and he's been teaching and preaching and the crowds are really vibing with Jesus. They like what he has to say. And so they're following him from town to town and they're listening and experiencing the miracles and all these things. And then he says some things that they don't like. So we're told in the book of John, many of the crowds walked away from him. In fact, some of his disciples, not the 12 apostles, but some of the other actual disciples got so hurt and frustrated by the things he was saying that they left with the crowds. So Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you guys want to leave too? Peter responds and he says, to whom would we go? You have the words of life. His words there, I think are really instructive and helpful to us. See, we think we need answers. And when we don't get answers, then we're like, well, God must not exist or he must not care. And so we put off God. We walk away from our faith. But when you abandon God, because life doesn't go the way that you think it's supposed to, what are you walking to? Who are you going to? Because if you leave behind God, you're left with circumstances that have no hope of redemption. There's nothing good that could come out of it. Without God, we are left with a cold, meaningless, indifferent universe. Yeah, you suffered. Yeah, it's unfair that your family member got cancer and died. But oh well, in the end, it's meaningless because we're all going to die and nobody's going to be around to care. So what we need is not answers because answers leave us empty. Answers end up pushing us away. What we need is an experience of God's presence in which we are reminded that he is present in our storms, that he speaks through our hardships, that there is a plan, even if we can't comprehend it, and above all else, God genuinely loves us no matter what's going on in our life circumstances. We're reminded in the Bible that our storms are real. But we're also promised in James chapter number four, verse eight, this. If you will draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Doesn't say he might. Doesn't say if you get yourself cleaned up. Doesn't say if you pray the right prayers. It literally says, no matter what you're going through today, 
If you would cry out to God, if you would draw near to him, he will meet you in the middle of your storm. He will speak the words of life to you. And that presence and those words will sustain you through your hardships and out to the other side. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the other side. We're going to wrap this all up. And although it ends on a positive note, it ends on a frustrating note as well. (laughs) So the key then is that we continue to lean into God. We continue to draw near to him. We continue to seek him no matter what it is that we might be going through. I want to pray for you this morning. And I'm just going to end it this way. I'm going to say, if you find yourself in the middle of a storm this morning, and you would like me to pray for you especially, that you would draw near to God and God would draw near to you, would you do me this favor? Would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you what your problem is. Would you just lift your hand and say, would you pray for me, please? Because I'm in one of these storms and I need God's presence. Thank you. I want to pray for you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would meet these folks in their place of need today. That God, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the hurt and the heartache and the loss, that you would speak words of life to their soul. You would comfort and strengthen them. That God, you would help them to stand when they feel like they've fallen. You would help them to move forward when they feel like they're stuck. But most importantly, God, that they would trust in you your goodness, your plans, your presence in all circumstances in their life. Thank you for not giving us easy answers. Thank you for being present with us in our our hardships and times of difficulty. It makes our relationship with you better and richer, God, as a result. So we pray that you would be with us in this season, hardship and loss in the same way that you were present with Job. That'll be enough for us, God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 